Well, good morning. I would not do this. I recognize the time, but I'm still going to preach because that's what preachers do. We preach. And so hopefully you came hungry. If you looked at your worship guide this morning, there's not quite so many fill in the blanks. Amen? So you can be hopeful. Anyway, all right. We have been in a series entitled Life After Exile over the last uh, several months. We've been looking at the narrative of Ezra and Nehemiah as the Jews have returned back to Jerusalem after the exile. I'll remind you the exile was a result of God's discipline out of his love for God's people. The nation of Israel turned from the Lord, began to chase after idols, doing their own thing. And so God allowed in his goodness... Yes, I said goodness and sovereignty to bring Israel out of Israel, the promised land, into Babylon. And over the course of years, God began to enact a plan to bring his people back to the promised land. And he did it through several different leaders. We've already looked at Zerubbabel. I like the name. Name your next kid that if you want to. Zerubbabel. And then there was Ezra. Zerubbabel built the temple back. Ezra reinstated, reinstated the Mosaic Law. And then we got into the book of Nehemiah a few weeks ago. And Nehemiah's old deal was to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem because they were broken down and need to be restored. And they were the protection of the city. And so really the book of Nehemiah, it kind of gets labeled as the the wall book. But there's a lot more to the book of Nehemiah. In fact, if we get to chapter 4, it seems like the task has been accomplished. You would think, well, that's the end of the story. We can just wrap up the book of Nehemiah, Ezra, all that's done. We can go on to the next sermon, next series, Pastor. And I would say, not so fast. Because here's the reality, and, and every one of us know this, the project is never finished, right? There's always another project. Husbands out there. Um, you ever hit the, the honeydew list, and you start working your way down that honeydew list, and you start feeling good and confident about yourself, right? And you're thinking, I might actually see the end. And the very next day, after you thought that ridiculous thought, right, the very next day, your wife brings a few other things to your attention, right? And it crushes your hope, amen, right? And then the way it works, right? Ladies, I'm not picking on you. The reality is this. No matter what you do, the work is never done. The, the, the dinners are never cooked, right? The laundry is never stopped, we got two young kids. How, is, how do we have that much laundry? Y'all ever thought of that before? How do you have that much laundry? The project never stops. In the book of Nehemiah, chapter 5, we see how one project is coming to a conclusion, but in the midst of restoration, this is important, there's another something that rises that brings in some conflict and some, and some, and some need for some revival or restitution. So let's look at that together in just a moment. Matthew chapter 5, I'm going to read these words to you before we get into our text. Uh, Matthew 5, Jesus says, and he's talking to the church, talking to those who believe in him. He says, you are the salt of the earth. Don't think French fry salt. I'll explain in a minute. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall it be, uh, saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all that are in the house. In the same way, Jesus says, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Salt doesn't just flavor things. I like salt. Can I get a witness? Amen, right? I like salt. But salt also preserves things. Light doesn't just help you keep the big bad boogeyman away at night. You're little nightlight teenagers. I know you use them, right? It's also to expose darkness, right? In Matthew chapter, excuse me, uh, Nehemiah chapter 5, we get some darkness that gets exposed by the light. Good things were happening back in Jerusalem, 
And all of a sudden, a, a bad thing, an injustice, was spotlighted as a result. So if you have your Bible, Nehemiah chapter 5, we'll start in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you to pay attention to the screen. If you're watching from home, please get a Bible and please grab a notepad that you can take a few notes. Hey, if you're in the room, my wife says I need to keep these to two or three fill-in-the-blanks per Sunday. You're welcome. And so that's what we're doing now, okay? You can thank her later on, okay? Verse 1. Come on, people. Now, there was a, arose a great outcry. Again, walls going up and the city's getting protected again. But in the midst of it, a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. Okay, so the Jews were turned back, rebuilding the wall, and all of a sudden something else happens in society. All right? Something else it becomes a, a point of contention. Here it is, verse 2. For there, for there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. And so there's a moment, and we're about to get into it, that they began to sell off all they have in order just to, to stay afloat. Now, I don't know if y'all have seen gas prices the last few weeks, but good Lord help us, amen, right? You've been to the grocery store lately? Good Lord help us, amen, right? There were some bad times in Jerusalem Inflation happening in Jerusalem, drought, there was a need for food, and the need was so great they were beginning to sell off all things they had to their Jewish brothers, and the rich was taking advantage of the poor, right? To the point, we'll get this in a minute, that they begin to sell off their children to the rich in order just to have enough food to survive. Some of you dads are like, can you, do, you can do that, right? No, you can't do that. I saw that look, Brian, right? You can't do that, Okay. So there was a, an injustice going on. That's what I want to talk about just for a minute. And I, I love preaching through series. And some people say, why, why are we staying in one book for such a long period of time? Because a couple different things. I think it's healthier diet of God's word as I preach, and it's better for the church. But number two, it also keeps me from being accused of targeting. Like there was a, a great push several years ago with what we call the social justice movement. And, and, and churches like, and pastors like me were kind of hit off guard with that. And the words sounded great. They, they sounded really, really great. Like, and we should all speak up against and speak for social justice. But what we have learned over the last couple of years, and again, this is, you know, I'm not political. I have a much higher calling. It's called the gospel than politics, okay? So, but the, the, what we learned is there's, a, there's an agenda that was happening in our society, and things were being leveraged in a certain way. And so uh, what we first thought was we should all get the pulpit and talk about social justice. But the problem is, is this. The Bible never uses adjectives with the word justice. Think about it. Gordy Bauckham said that. He said, the Bible never uses adjectives when it comes to the word justice. What, what happens sometimes in, in, in pulpits across the world is that preachers will step out of the lane and they will angle text. And then, listen, I've been guilty of this too, and, and trust me, I've had to do a lot of repentance about this as well. The, the angle text towards a cultural issue as compared to letting the text speak to our issues as they come. Amen. So today, I want to talk about justice, but I don't want you to think of the word social justice. I want to think about biblical justice this morning. Number one in your worship guide. Justice is not subjective, but it is anchored in moral absolutes. Justice is not subjective. It's anchored in moral absolutes. In fact, if you look up the very definition of the word justice, it's the quality of being just, righteous, or moral rightness, which demands that there is a moral standard someplace, Right? There's some sense of right and wrong someplace. There has to be an absolute someplace. To say there are no such absolutes means you just made an absolute statement, which means you just defunct your own myth. We can go all day long with that if you want to, okay? Right? So there has to be a, a standard of rightness in order to have justice, right? And it has to be anchored in someone who is right or righteous. Y'all with me, church? Right? 
which means justice cannot be anchored in any society of man. It cannot be in any whim of man. It cannot be arbitrarily decided by man. Justice is established in absolute morality, absolute standards. And that person who decides all of that is not me, it's not our president, it's not our culture, but it's God himself, as revealed in God's word. Amen? So we're not talking about social justice, but we are talking about biblical justice, which is the definition of what justice is, because it's rooted in righteousness and the right, right thing, doing the right thing. So we're talking about that kind of justice. Biblical justice and social justice are not the same. One espouses absolute truth, biblical justice, while the other subjective ideology, right? Isaiah 61 verse 8 says, for I the Lord love justice. God says, I love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give you them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Amos, we never quote from Amos. Amos chapter 5, verse 24. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Isaiah 61, verse 22. The Spirit of the Lord has got upon me, it's upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison of those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. By the way, in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus quoted that text as he read a scroll. So Jesus cares about justice. Amen? Justice is a big deal. This is what it means to be salt and light in the world. Because when you start doing gospel things, the gospel exposes darkness. Amen? There are things that come out of the shadows because the gospel... Sheds light in the shadows. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 17. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. One, one uh, clergy member says, If you are a neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. And that, is, that is true. So as Proverbs 31.9 says, Defend the rights of the poor and needy. We are supposed to do that. We are supposed to step in to these Horrible situations. Dietrich Bonhoeffer did. If you ever uh, read the history of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he did. He made this statement. He said, we are not to simply bandage the wounds of victims beneath the wheels of injustice. We are to drive a spoke into the wheel itself. Right? So it's one thing to acknowledge problems. It's another thing to do something about the problem. So verse 3. Let's get into the problem. Y'all with me? Say, uh-huh. There was also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. So we're, we're borrowing in order to pay out. We're borrowing from Peter to pay Paul. I had a conversation earlier with Bob Ellie, talking about stewardship earlier, and how, how prone this our culture is. We are, we are prone to borrowing to the point of, of crippling ourselves, Right? And I'm not picking on you. If like you have a lot of debt, preachers not calling you out. We've all been there before. We've all gotten in over our head before, right? But sometimes we get in over our head and we borrow, 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 borrow. And there's this biblical principle. In fact, if you look at Proverbs 22, verse seven, it says this: "The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is slave of the lender." So anytime number two in your worship, God, anytime you see uh, borrowing, you see slavery, debt. Leads to slavery in every area of stewardship. Debt leads to slavery. Now, like preacher, does that mean like I can't have a mortgage on my house? I have a mortgage on my house. 
I think there is such thing as, as developing mortgage, developing debt. There's also a thing called debt that buries you. Amen? Credit card. <clears throat> debt. This idea that we have to have 18 years of school and more student loans than we can possibly ever pay for in a lifetime. Burying us in debt. And we are slaves to the bows we're borrowing money from. That's the situation in Jerusalem. People are, are borrowing money just to pay taxes, just to keep above float so they can stay out of jail and keep a little bit of food in their mouth, right? And all the while, this is important, the Jews, these are Jews who are wealthy, are taking advantage of their brothers in this. Like, that, that should not be. Like think about this in our, in our context. Like, say, say Christians are taking advantage of other Christians in the context. Like, Christians in the church who, who are a little bit more wealthier, you know, we're, we're, we're actually extorting the poor in our church because they got to have food, so I'll give them an interest rate of 25%. Woo! In Uganda, we, we, they did a stewardship conference, uh, so Evan spoke. By the way, Evan gets out from behind the camera every now and then, all right? And Evan and Kelly spoke, a couple other guys from Valley Baptist Church spoke, did a stewardship conference they're talking about uh, in Uganda and Africa, people, they, they, the, when money's get, they get money, they spend it immediately. There's just no idea of saving money in Africa. Like it's just in one hand, out the other hand. It, just, it is what it is. That's the way they work. So they don't, don't have uh, money to, to pay the bills, so to speak, or eat. And so they begin to they go and get to, to basically a loan shark who, who charges them 20% interest or more in order to, to keep going. And they get behind and it snowballs and it snowballs and snowballs. Next thing you know, there, there's no hope of, of getting out of the of the snowball. Y'all with me, right? That seems absurd to us, but we do it in America too. Sometimes it's not money. Sometimes it's other areas. We, we feel our schedule's too full. We borrow from Peter to pay Paul. And we are in debt someplace to somebody. Next thing you know, we're a slave to something other than Christ. So in every area of stewardship, debt leads to slavery. Verse 5. So now our flesh, the Jews are crying, our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be their slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it's not in our power to help it. For our men have our fields and our vineyards. So like we're having to sell off our kids in order just to survive. And Nehemiah, who's a contractor, he's like a builder. He's like Tim the Tool Man, Taylor, arf, 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 right? Like, he doesn't want to worry about this, but he's become a leader now. He's the governor of the area, and they're bringing him this stuff, and he gets mad. Like, y'all ever got mad about something before? Like, he got, he got wholly, righteously angry about something. You saw something that just made you, I mean, you boil, blood boil. Like, as a dad, if you, you mess with my kids, I'm going to get mad, all right? You mess with my wife? I will cut you. No, I'm kidding. I won't cut you, right? But I get mad because you don't mess with my family. Amen? Like, like, there are things that we get righteously angry about, and Nehemiah gets mad. Verse 6, I was very angry. Uh, I mentioned last week a, a little video uh, from Tim Hawkins about Christian cuss words. I'm sure he used different words other than bad cuss words, but he probably said some some Christian cuss words, okay? And I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself. I love this. Nehemiah, he sat down with himself and had a conversation with himself. You all ever do that before? I took counsel with myself and, <laughs> listen, even if you did that, don't admit it in the Bible, right? That's weird. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. You are taking advantage of, his, of your brother. You are basically extorting your brother. 
That's wrong. Number three, sin and injustice should make believers angry. It should. We cannot be pacifist in the war for cultural morality. One of the greatest issues we see in the church today is that we have been passive. And we wonder why the world is the way the world is. We wonder where the Judeo-Christian values is that we grew up in, right? Like I, I remember that kind of culture, and we get angry that it's, we're not in Mayberry anymore, right? We're not in Kansas anymore. Things are different. You know why they're different? One is not because of them. It's because of us. We didn't step up in the gap of salt and light and say, you know what? That is not what God's word says. That is not based upon absolute moral truth. And so we can't go there. That's just wrong. And we love you, but we just can't go there, right? We didn't do that. We were quiet. Now, listen, I'm completely opposed uh, to violent protest. I'm completely opposed to, to, to being disrespectful. Uh, we, we are to love the world, the people in the world. Amen. We are to show the love of Jesus Christ in all situations, but we are to step up and say, it's just not right. And let me tell you why it's not, not right. Based upon thus says the Lord. We should be angry sometimes when it comes to the sin in our life and the sin in our world. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, be angry and do not sin. So it seems to say, like, when you get angry, you could, sin, anger can lead, anger to lead to sin, but anger can also lead to, to doing something about a situation. Amen? I think about the story of Jesus. Two different times in Jesus' life, one early in John, one later in Matthew. Two different times, Jesus goes into the temple and sees injustice going on in the temple. They were making a mockery of God's house, and he throws out the money changers. I don't think he walked up politely and says, hey, will you please leave? He throws them out. I'm not a wrestling fan. Some of y'all are wrestling fans. But I got to get the idea. He got up on the ropes, some sides, and just buried them, you know. And then just shoved them out the door. Right? Threw them out. Jesus was angry. And he was right to be angry. He says, you made my, my father's house a house of fools. It should be a house of prayer, but it's a house of fools. My ha- my, God's house, my father's house should be a house of prayer. You made it the spiritual, the unspiritual. And he was angry. So we can be angry and not sin. James 1.19 says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Yes, we should be careful not to get anger, angry and let anger get the best of us. Here's the, here's the point. We can get angry and angry not get us. You with me? Sometimes it's okay to be anger, angry. But anger has a way, and you all know this, leads to bitterness, leads to hatred. Right? So if we stop here with anger and we do something about it that the Bible commands us to do about it and we do the right thing to please God and we speak up in injustice, that's good. That's not evil. And when we get bitter, get hateful, that's wrong. To do the right thing the wrong way is wrong. But you can get angry and not sin. James 1.20, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I think what James is trying to point out is if we let our anger Settle and settle and settle and not do anything right about the anger, it will lead to bitterness and it will lead to hatred. Proverbs 29 11, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Let me ask you, do you have an anger issue? If you have an anger issue, is, a, is it a right anger or is it a wrong anger? Nehemiah 5, verse 7, he said, I held a great assembly against them. Got everybody together. 
And he said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers. We've been talking about this now for three months, man. They're bringing everybody back to Jerusalem. Who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers. They may be sold to us. Like, like, what you're doing is like, this is absurd. Because we have paid the price for now over 70 years. We've been in exile because of Babylon, because of Assyria, right? Because ultimately God. And finally, out of God's grace, he's allowed us to begin moving back. And we're doing the very same thing to each other that they did to us. And that makes, it makes no sense. Like he's angry about this. He sees the injustice about this. And, of course, when, when he begins to make his argument, of course they're going to be quiet, right? He says they were silent and could not find a word to say. You know why? Because they knew they were wrong. You ever been in an argument before and somebody made an argument against you and you, all you could do is uh, 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 Because you realize you just got whipped, right? You really get the error of your way. And no matter how hard you want to be right, Bailey, right, you realize you were wrong. That was way too easy. Verse 9, so I said, the thing that you are doing is, is not good. It's just not good. It's wrong. Number four, sin, and that's what we're talking about context-wise. Fast forward this thing. It's a rebellion against God. Sin enslaves us to behaviors and attitudes that ultimately destroy us. This is, like, if you miss all the other ones, just make sure you get this number four. Like sin enslaves us to attitudes and behaviors that destroy us. Sin is the plague. John 8, 34, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. As Paul David Tripp says, sin doesn't always look sinful to us. Sometimes it looks beautiful. That's why we need grace to see sin for what it really is. It's dark, it's dangerous, it's enslaving, and it's destructive. Isn't that true? Galatians chapter 5, Jesus says, here's the gospel, for freedom, Christ has set you free, amen? Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Why go back to sinning? Okay, back in Nehemiah's context, why are we going back and doing this to each other? We've already been given grace to not, why? Why? We are making a mockery of God by doing this. By the way, sin makes a mockery of God for us. We're enslaved by it. And yet Christ has already set us free from the sin that currently entangles you. I'll say it again. Christ has already set us free from the sin that currently entangles you. You just got to walk away. I just got to walk away. You've probably heard this expression. Nobody really knows where it came from. Sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. That's the truth. Piper says this, John Piper says, Sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God. No one sins out of duty. We sin because it holds out some promise of happiness. That promise enslaves us until we believe that God is more to be desired than life itself. Which means that the power of sin's promise is broken by the power of God's promise. All sin begins with a dissatisfaction with God. When you're satisfied in Christ, you walk away from sin. It enslaves. Verse 9, almost there. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? And this is the bottom line when it comes to sin. Walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies. 
The fear of God is the important part of this equation. Number five, biblical justice, justice is founded on the fear of God and not just the love of God. Like some of y'all didn't get that, okay? Biblical justice is founded, it's anchored on the fear of God and not just the love of God. We have a major point of contention in modern church theology that we are to sing the love of God, and that's absolutely true, but we don't talk about the fear of God. We have lost reverence and respect for the Almighty, haven't we? In, in many, and listen, I'm not picking on modern churches, contemporary churches, but sometimes the contemporary modern church is so entertainment-driven, there is no even thought to reverence for God Almighty. There is no fear of God. There's love of God. We love God. We love God. We love God. We love God. Peace, love, flower power. We love God. Sing out the love songs. Love God. But what about His holiness? What about His moral purity? His righteousness? His justice? See, see, justice is anchored and founded in the fear of God, not just the love of God. And so what Nehemiah does, he drives them back to a healthy fear of God of God. I'll say it again, a healthy fear of God. Verse 10, moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. It ain't right. We got to stop it before the fear of God because we're afraid of God's going to get us. You know what? We're all that close to God getting us. And, and you deserve it. And I deserve it, don't we? Proverbs 8, 13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech, I hate, God says. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12 says, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your soul. Proverbs 3, 7 says, but be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Matt Chandler says, men of God are those who walk in the fear of the Lord. Women of God, hey, ladies, are those who walk in the fear of the Lord. Not just to love the Lord. I hope you love the Lord. But I also hope you fear him. Because fear can be healthy sometimes when it comes to the Lord. Sinclair Ferguson said, the fear of the Lord tends to take away all other fears. This is the secret of Christian courage and boldness. When you fear God, you fear nothing else. Amen. So verse 11 says, return to them this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, oil that you have been exacting from them. And they said, we will, re here's this word, restore. All right, you're right, you're right, Nehemiah, and we're wrong. Tail between the legs, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priest and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook, <laughs> this is how serious Nehemiah was, like he wanted to make a, a point I shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep his promise. You break your promise, I hope God gets you. That's what Nehemiah says. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen. And then you know what they did? They praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Now, how is, how is this the gospel? Here's, here's, three out. here's the gospel for you. The gospel is this. The gospel confronts our sin and our rebellion against God. And we have to do one or two things with that. We overlook it 
and we try to continue living in it and be enslaved by it, or we repent of it and we turn to Christ for our forgiveness and for our, here's the word, listen, freedom from sin. This is the same issue that the Jews struggle with back in covenant past and moving back into Jerusalem and continue to deal with. This is the same issue that we today deal with. It's the sin that so easily entangles us. But God says, break the chains. They're already broken because of Christ. And step out of the prison because you are set free. Stop going back into debt of sin when the price has already been paid by Jesus. So that's what we're going to talk about for just a moment. Our time of invitation today is a time of uh, not just commitment. If you have a decision to be made, salvation, and you realize you've never been saved, repenting of your sin, God, I'm sorry, I'm going to turn back to you, placing your faith in Jesus for your salvation, I beg you to do that. Maybe, maybe you're today and you saw some teenagers and a young lady say, you know what, I want, to, I want to be obedient in baptism. You've never done that. Maybe you need to make a point and come talk to me at the front and do that. Maybe the Lord's prompting you to join our church today. Hey, let's do, let's do that. Join this faith family. But maybe God is in this moment saying, hey, you need to get some sin fixed. You need to confess some sin. Because in a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And one of the things about the Lord's Supper that highlights is the price that's been paid for our sin. So we wouldn't be enslaved any longer. We're going to finish the service today with the Lord's Supper. So a time of commitment is a time of twofold invitation, to respond and to prepare for taking the Lord's Supper. Would you pray with me this morning? I'm going to ask Nick and Maddie to come and, and lead. Lord God, thank you for your word and how your word and the gospel exposes sin and exposes injustice. And Lord, we have to do something with that. When it's our own life, Lord, we have to repent and move towards Christ again, towards you. But, Lord, when it comes to the world, Lord, help us to stand up and speak up and say, Lord, it's just wrong. And, and Lord, help us not to expect lost people to act like Christians when, when Christians sometimes don't do that. But, Lord, help us to, sh- to lovingly and caringly show God's way and bring cultural renewal and restoration where that's possible. Lord, help us not to be pacifist. Lord, help us not to be silent. Lord, we thank you for the blood of Christ. We thank you for the body that was broken. We thank you for the gospel, the work of Christ. And because of that, Lord, we have freedom. Lord, move us in us now. Lord, move us to decisions. Lord, move us to change. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?